Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. Good evening, everybody. It's Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Hope everybody is staying healthy, staying safe, trying to keep busy, trying to stay social. feel like I've been repeating myself here over the last several episodes, but it's what we got to do. Hopefully, it's you know over sooner than later, and we can get back to what will be the new normal as soon as possible. I'm a huge fan of our next guest, and he is someone I've been listening to since I was Younger in my youth, and I'm, I have the pleasure to introduce Mr. Joe Satriani. How are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing great. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're doing good as well, Jay. Well, again, thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to start out with the same question we always ask a first-time guest, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that sucks you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band or performance that hooked them on rock and roll? What was it for you? <laughs> um, my, um, wow, th- those moments uh, came really early because I was the uh, youngest of five kids. So uh, my older sisters, my older brother were really living the music and the social upheaval of the 60s right from the beginning, I, I guess from the late 50s all the way through when I started to go to high school in 70. So I can remember, like it was yesterday, I must have been uh, just when the Rolling Stones came out because we were up in the country somewhere in Vermont. Uh, My sisters were being driven to a, uh, 
a teenage dance of some kind, and they'd just let me come along for the ride, and I'd beg to, you know, be able to peek in the door to where my sisters were going, and they let me walk in to the side of this small, uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe there's 200 kids in this little wreck uh, area, you know, that was in, in this small town. I think it was Holtney, Vermont, some little town. And uh, so I'm standing by the door, and I'm watching all these teenagers, which, of course, when you're, whatever, five years old, they're the coolest things ever uh, to you, you know. And uh, there's music playing, and kids are dancing, and I, I look at the band, and I hear this music, and I think, this is the greatest thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. Now, this is a, obviously a little kid thinking, you know, this is, you know, besides, uh, you know, parental love, ice cream, and whatever else is exciting when you're that young. But this was important because I can still remember it for some reason. And they were playing Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. And I think it had just come out. So I don't know what that is, 1963 or something like that. So um, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm really young, and uh, I, I'm just enveloped by that sound. And uh, there was a saxophone player playing Keith Richards' part, you know, that was obviously played with a first-generation distortion pedal of some kind on the guitar. But um, I just remember thinking this is this is the most uh, profound experience I've ever had <laughs> in all my years on the planet. And uh, it stayed with me, and I just kept trying to relive that whatever that was, that excitement, that, uh, to recreate that world for myself. Uh, and I insisted on becoming a drummer not too long after that. And, and I did play a lot of Rolling Stones music and Beatles music and basically anything that my older siblings were listening to because I thought they were the coolest. So that they, they were responsible for my musical upbringing. Yeah, I had a similar experience, too, with my older brother. You know, I think it's important sometimes when you are diving into music and you have an older sibling that likes rock, rock and roll, whatever, they, you know, and you hear that coming from their bedroom and they have all their friends over and you're a young kid and you, of course, like you just said, you know, you look at a teenager and they're the coolest things ever and you want to be like them and you want to listen to what they're listening to. So, you know, that, that transfer of the art from an older sibling is I've always said it's it's really important when you're growing up as a kid yeah it is it's, it's amazing it really is uh, I, it's uh, I, I, I was pretty you know it's funny when I go over in my mind experiences like that I you know it's cloudy first of all because I know that the brain reorganizes memories you know we the scientists have proven that it's a funny little thing that we do to our memories to make ourselves feel good about where we came from, where we're going. Uh, but uh, every time I relive that story, I, I start to ask myself, now, when was that like, you know, and then eventually I, I start uh, really getting down to specifics. And I realize now, wait a minute, I couldn't have been five. You know, I, I must have been a little bit older. I must have been seven or something like that because of the release date of the single, you know, that, that sort of historical rock and roll musician part of my brain kicks in and says, now, wait a minute, that single didn't come out until 65. So, uh, um, but so that's what I'm, I'm, 
I realize that, you know, uh, when you go, when somebody asks, asks you a question like that, that part of it is how your brain has uh, turned your experience into almost like a myth that you rely on. Um, and obviously that happened so quickly to me. But it makes sense when I go over that with the, the more uh, structured part of my brain and I realize, no, that makes sense because if, if that single came out 65, uh, and I started playing drums when I was nine, then that that meant that it took me two years to talk my parents into buying me some kind of a drum kit, <laughs> which I think is very important when you think about, you know, you can imagine the fifth kid, your parents are like losing their minds, you know, and it's the 60s and everything is being turned upside down. And, and along comes this little squirt who wants to like really make a bunch of rackets in the basement, you know, so. Oh, my poor family. Well, they're either going crazy at that time or they've built up patience. You know, they've built up the stamina. (laughs) And and Yeah, I think they did. And then, uh, of course, my older sisters were just dying to go to college to get out of the house. And then slowly, by the time my parents had acquiesced and let my band rehearse in the basement, all my siblings had left. They were living out of the house or they were still in college or something like that. So... It was, it was only, you know, and, but I think my parents at that point thought that they wanted their little kid to make as much noise to piss off their neighbors because maybe they didn't get along with their neighbors anyway. So (laughs) they were my, uh, my staunchest allies, actually. They, they used to talk down the police all the time when neighbors used to call for noise complaints, you know, so I have to give them great thanks for allowing us to do that absolutely absolutely sticking up for the for the kid and, and uh, letting you play yeah where did it happen or when did it happen that you wanted to pick up a guitar and play well there were there were uh two um two moments that uh that were extremely important i mean the first one was sort of a gentle nudging uh it was because uh uh, I, I have three sisters, and, and the youngest of the three, a few years older than myself, was a folk guitar player throughout high school. So I used to see her, you know, in the house, around the house. I actually saw her play a, a performance at her school uh, playing guitar. And so, you know, while I was banging the drums, you know, I started to notice, wow, she can really, like, go off in the corner and quietly play music, and no one seems to be upset. Whereas every time I sat behind the drums, I just get grief and that was partly because I wasn't very good but also because it's extremely noisy to practice drums you know there's just no way around it and uh, so there's this guitar hanging around and I'm getting used to the idea and I'm slowly getting introduced to the rock guitarists of the, the mid to late 60s through uh, my older siblings and um, I'm becoming a Hendrix fanatic uh, you know I just absolutely love Hendrix and, and Jimmy Page and Clapton and the, the, the whole group of them. Of course, I've, I'm already totally a Beatles and Stones freak by then. And um, But I, I started to wane on the drums because I wasn't feeling like I was going to really be very good. It just I could tell I'd hit some sort of uh, physical wall, you know, where my my coordination was just not up to what I was listening to on, on records of my favorite bands, you know. And so there's a couple of years where I'm, who knows what I'm doing. I'm just chasing girls, having fun, getting in trouble, trying to get some decent grades in school. Uh, and then one day, 
in uh, 1970, Jimi Hendrix dies, and I get the news. And for some reason, that was the catalyst. I, I found out as I was heading out to football practice, I immediately turned around and took off my gear, told the coach I was quitting to become a guitarist. I went home that night, and I told everybody over dinner that's what I was going to do. I'm not quite sure <laughs> what got me to that point, but I was, it was just such, I was so devastated by Hendrix dying that I, I just thought this is what I've been waiting, the decision I was waiting to make. And, and it just, uh, his untimely death sort of, you know, forced it to happen. Well, it was the connection, you know, of his music that you know, made you feel that way. You know, that's the beautiful thing about music, you know, even in its darkest times or its biggest challenges or when news like that happens, you have that connection with people you have that you know connection with the audience that knows your music and the music then lives on and it certainly did with hendrix it's amazing the power of music is absolutely amazing it's it's uh you, you really can't you, you just can't quantify it you can't figure it out um it's interesting that you know as i've been really fortunate to uh stick around a long time and and you know develop a a life around creating music and and performing with people, making albums. I've experienced that magic in so many different ways. Whereas when I was 14, I, I, you know, an intellectual dwarf, as all, all teenagers start out, you know, mostly hormones and, and, uh, and bodily uh, tissues uh, than, than brain power. So it, it's hard for me to really recall exactly what I was thinking. I can tell you what I was feeling, which was just, you know, a rush of emotions and, energy and a certainty that somehow the music would work out. I didn't know the specifics of what being a musician was going to be or how I, what I would play or how, or how I'd make a living or any of that. But I, I know that the feeling was that there was a path that was opening up and it was the only path to take. And it was, it was a road that was built with sound and emotions. And it just seemed the right thing to do at the time. Just, but it's freaky just to think that I do it in front of thousands of people and I do it alone in my studio, uh, you know, just getting inspired about one small feeling about a person, a place, an event, and I create a song and then I get to share it with the world and then, you know, on record and then get to, to do it in front of them all around the world. It's just, uh, it's, uh, it's difficult to, uh, to grasp, actually, the the enormity of something that we we still can't figure out, like why it happens. Why why is the, that musical experience so profound to us? It's it's really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, when you think about songs and you think about how they connect with people, at least for me, I'm only speaking. I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, sometimes it helps me relate to something that I'm going through, or helps me enjoy something that I've experienced, you know. I mean, you've got the, you know, the good time music and you've and then you've got the 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 music that is has maybe more of a deeper connection with you. So, I think it's just that vehicle people use throughout their life to help them, you know, you mentioned your memory bank. You know, you mentioned how you file memories. It helps people keep memories alive that they had you know years ago or with people that they know maybe no longer see anymore experiences that they no longer do anymore so it has so many facets to it and so many different 
you know, ways to enjoy it and, and reasons to, you know, maybe not even sometimes enjoy it. Maybe also sometimes help you reflect on something that was a challenge or a sad moment in your life. It really has the power to do that. Yes, yeah. It, uh, it's something that uh, I try to um, harness when uh, I'm writing music. Um, you know, I, I read this thing a number of years ago that really fascinated me, and it was it was about how the brain uh, files memories and then goes back and re, uh, reorganizes them, changes them to fit with what our personality thinks it it needs, like the the, the how it needs to remember something. And this is why, like in in court cases, the you know eyewitness uh, recollections are so unreliable because people sort of touch up their memories of things for some reason. And, and it's difficult to figure out why uh, that happens. But I've used, once I realized that, and, and if I can go on a little bit about this, the, the experiment that I read about was fascinating to me, and it had to do with uh, the timing of events and the memory of them and how the brain will actually change the sequence of events in somebody's memory to make them more... Uh, palatable, uh, I'm not sure if that's the right word, but so that they feel better about the memory. And they did a little experiment where uh, when when people were asleep, when they wake them up, they would expose them to uh, a particular stimulus, like a sound, like an alarm clock or something with an unusual sound. And these people would wake up thinking that they were dreaming about that sound, and then they woke up when in actual reality they were asleep and then the sound uh, w- was external. They weren't dreaming about a sound and then they woke up and heard the sound. They actually were awakened by the sound. But their brain said, no, we're going to rearrange that. And they and the brain does it quickly in a matter of microseconds. It says, we're going to flip it around. We were dreaming about, you know, a bell and then woke up and then miraculously we heard the bell you know and th- that fascinated me and and uh i thought well that, that's really strange we are really unusual as a species that are that you know we think we're in control of things but actually the, our sense of reality is completely being reinvented by our brain storage uh and and how it how it likes to reorganize things so i started thinking um more and more about the connection to the way that I've uh, written songs over the years and how I can sort of ramp that up. And specifically about how I can go and I can imagine a feeling that I have about something that might be uh, small. And I'll, the simplest example would be, let's say, you know, your your first sip of a, a glass of wine, you know, and, and you go, that's good, right? And then but if you think of that experience, you go, what if when you drank that, you know, first sip of wine, you felt like you had never tasted anything like that before in your entire life, and now your entire life is going to be better than ever before. In other words, you have tasted the elixir of life, and, and you can take another sip of it. And I thought, well, if that was the case, how would you write a song about that? And then uh, I went back and I was thinking about songs where I had actually unconsciously done that. Like There was a song I had written many years ago called The Crush of Love, and actually it started quite innocently. I was at home practicing. Uh, my wife was uh, out working, and she called and said, oh, it's 
work is dragging and I'm going to miss dinner by back by like nine or something like that. Right? So everything's real cool. And I hang up and I go, that's interesting. Like, okay, so I'm a little sad. We're not going to go have dinner together. And so I just took that feeling and I just kept like uh, amplifying it and, and uh, turning it into uh, a story of ridiculous proportions. And then I thought, well, now what, what's the soundtrack to that? You know, what if what if she called and said, uh, not only am I not coming over dinner, but I'm never coming home <laughs> or, you know, something totally outrageous. And and that became the, the fuel uh, and, and the or the raw material, emotional material to to uh, to write the song. Um, and it's been a, a, a very interesting way to uh, to to really investigate small feelings to find out. Uh, you know, if I'm, uh, you know, maybe they're bigger and maybe I'm suppressing it. Uh, maybe the memory that I have has been altered and I should really think hard about it because maybe it's different. You know, just like the story of satisfaction. My brain thinks that I was really small when I heard it, but I know when I checked the dates that I was just a little bit older. I wasn't five. I, must, I had to have been six going on seven, you know. So why, why do I remember it differently? I don't know. Um, uh, but the, the 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 method has served me well all the way to uh, the making of the most recent record where I I did the same kind of thing. I had a theme, I had memories, and I just uh, investigated them and then amplified them to epic proportions in order to squeeze more notes out of them. You know, when you're writing music, you know you've written both for you know lyrical you know lyrical songs and then instrumental songs. And when you're writing lyrics, you're able to tell a story. You're able to grab the audience by the words that you're using, help them relate to maybe similar situations. They connect with the song and the lyrics. When you're writing instrumentally, you don't have that vehicle, you, uh, the words. You have to convey everything you are feeling with your emotion through the notes that you're playing. How do you approach it differently? I mean, obviously, you, you haven't written... You didn't write any songs lyrically for this new album, but in the past that you have, what is the difference in writing a song versus you know, lyrically versus instrumentally? Oh well, this you know there's there's two important sides of this. Uh, one is the obvious, which is when you don't have lyrics to transfer a very clear message to somebody, then the pressure is on your arrangement of the notes and your choice of the notes. So. An example I, I use is, you know, if you're going to write a song and it's about your house being on fire, all you have to do is start singing, my house is on fire. <laughs> and right away, your audience knows, oh, the song is about this guy's house is on fire, you know. So, you know, a transmission of the meaning of the song is accomplished very quickly, you know, uh, right from the beginning of the song. And all the lyricist has to do is say it. Now, Obviously, lots of lyrics are, you know, you know, sometimes are just "I love you," "I want you," "Let's dance," you know. They're they're very obvious like that, but then sometimes they're unusual, and you go, well, "What are they singing about?" You know, <laughs> you're listening to Peter Gabriel sing a song, and you're thinking, "Well, this is gonna it's gonna be like the second verse by the time I figure out what it is he's actually talking about." So some lyrics are more poetic, and more, and others are more, you know, they want you to know. Right, right from the start, what the song's about, you know. And uh, but here's something that people 
never think about when they ask me that question, which is, uh, I can tell them, for for example, uh, when I'm writing uh, uh, songs with Sammy Hagar, very often I write a song and I kind of know what I'm thinking it's about, but I don't know what he's going to come up with. So I don't even know the meaning of the song until he writes the lyrics. And I may, and we may not know it as a band until two months later after the music is already recorded. I can't, I mean, just think about that. You know, you get to get a toss like, like with typical with chicken foot is I create a bunch of demos. I send the demos out to the band. They pick, you know, 10, 12 songs out of the 20 that I send them. We, we, somehow managed to all be in one room together for a couple of days. We knock out these things. Sammy's listening, maybe just riffing around, but he hasn't really decided what the song is going to be about. He might use my working title. He might not. And then everybody goes away. Chad goes back to the Chili Peppers. I go out on tour, you know, and then two months later we get back together and Sammy says, you know, I think this song is about, you know, uh, this. And we all go, huh? (laughs) <laughs> you know, like, really? Uh, so that kind of blows the whole theory of somebody writing music for a particular lyric. I mean, that's like, you know, uh, very few people do that. Like Elton John, Bernie Taupin famously, you know, would write in that format. Bernie would write lyrics, and uh, Elton would get receive the lyrics in the morning, and he would write the music in a in a big flurry of activity, and then they'd record it in the afternoon. That's like almost unheard of in the music industry that writers work like that. Mostly there's a guy's got a riff and a groove and some chords, and they record it, and slowly the singer decides this song is about me going to outer space or, or having a great time with somebody or a tragedy or some historical event that I read about or something like that, or it's, it's all political or whatever, you know what I mean? So, um, now I, I get that question all the time. What's the difference? But I always feel like I got to wave that flag and say, you know, it's not that cut and dry. <laughs> and, and, and plus there are, uh, there are instrumental elements, uh, within a vocal song, uh, that are, uh, extremely important to help uh, send the message, you know. Um, and I think about, I go back to like the early Hendrix songs, you know, like Purple Haze, you know, it's like the sound of the guitar. How important is that, you know? In a way, Jimi Hendrix was always an instrumentalist while he was also singing over the songs, you know, because he, he married the sound uh, and his note selection with the theme of the song so well. Uh, uh, not everyone does that. You know, think about country music. Okay, you know, the, it, very often the music accompanies uh, a story. And uh, it, it's not as specific, let's say, as the songs on, uh, you know, the first Jimi Hendrix Experience album, where every freaking guitar performance is so specifically tied to what Jimi is singing about. It's not your average you know, rock, psychedelic rock, whatever you want to call it. But in country music, there's like a convention of like, you have to, you know, play a certain way to be country. And then it's simply a platform for the singer to start singing and telling you the story of the song. It's such a completely different 
way of, uh, of writing and organizing music, you know, with very little instrumental involvement. Uh, and so, uh, obviously, I, I, I could go on for hours, and sure. this, is not, <laughs> this would not help your podcast. No, you know? it's 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 so. definitely interesting. I, you know, I, I love the answer, and I, you know, I just, you know, when I've asked this question before, you know, the, the, the writer of the lyrics has that vulnerable point where he's writing a song about something that means something to him or a memory that he's had where maybe it wasn't the best experience of his life and, he, and he's vulnerable because he's putting that out to the audience lyrically. He's telling a story. Whereas instrumentally, you're still telling a story through the notes, So it's but it's just a different connection because ultimately people are going to connect with it with how they feel. And, yes, yeah, and, yeah. And so that's why I was just asking like, you know, when you have written a song with words versus the instrumentals that, you know, you're known for, you know, is there a difference in your approach of, you know, are you writing about something that you feel or have felt in the past that, you know, it was either happy, sad, or whatever the emotion is? And how do you convey that emotion when you don't have the words to to tell that story? Oh, well, well, it, well, you know, I don't know how to answer that because I don't know, actually, but I can tell you a story that uh, is such a perfect example of how whatever your inspiration is, once you play it and you give it to the fans, you've given it away. And so here's the story behind the song Crying from my extremist album. So my father passed away a few years before I recorded that album. And uh, so I'd written this song one day uh, playing keyboards, uh, just trying to uh, um, figure out how to focus, you know, in my grieving to focus on all the great times. And, and all the good elements of our, our life together while, while he was alive. And so I wrote this song, and I, I didn't know if it would, you know, it's for public consumption or anything. I just wrote it, and then I thought, this, you know, I really do want to try to record this, you know. And I was kind of shy about, you know, telling everybody, you know, what the what the song was really about. Because uh, I thought, I don't know if it helps anybody. And, and, you know, right away when we started to work on it, people thought it was a beautiful song, a love song. And I didn't interrupt them, you know, from how they reacted to it. And we go to record the song, and we the the performance of my guitar is a one take performance recorded by mistake because we're we're that afternoon we were focusing on trying to get Matt and Greg Bissonette to uh, to lay down the basic drums and bass. I programmed a keyboard for them to listen to, but at one moment, Andy John says, you know, Joe, why don't you just play along so they kind of know where the, where the melody's going. Maybe that'll help, you know, uh, in their performance. And then he went back to concentrating uh, on the drums and the bass, and me and the assistant just said, well, how we, you know, what should we do? And I said, well, let's just use this little headphone amp, and we'll just, uh, we'll just go right to tape. Don't worry about it. You know, I wasn't thinking about it. And, but then, as very often happens in, in the arts, you don't know when you're going to do your work, you know. You just <laughs> you never know when you're going to play something good and when you're going to suck. But right then that afternoon at, at, in Oceanway Studios, I for some reason I played the performance 
that was going to be the best performance of me playing that song ever. Just so happened I was plugged into a little headphone amp that went to ruck the tape, and that was it. And Andy knew as soon as we were done, Andy Johns turned around, you know, uh, and he was like, oh my God, you just played the performance of your lifetime, and I didn't record it properly. You know, he was so upset that it had happened that way. And I just thought, well, I'll just play it again. And he looked at me like, you're never going to play that again. And, you know, he was right, you know. And, and so you never know when things like that happen. Uh, but here's the funny part as it relates to your, your question. So the, it comes out uh, on the Extremist album. And we're out, out on tour for months. And I get a call from my manager saying that there's a German uh, football program we call it soccer, they call it football. And they've been using the song Crying as their theme song. And they use it to play the highlights of that week's, uh, you know, greatest uh, triumphs and tragedies in, in European football. And they want you to come on the show and play it live. And I thought, oh, this is, you know, my dad would be laughing hysterically about this. And, and I thought, okay, I, I, this is a new experience. <laughs> That they don't know what the song is about, obviously, and the audience has already thought it was a romantic song, and now it's being used by this soccer program on television in Germany, and we're going to go play it live in front of a live audience. Uh, it, it was such a bizarre lesson in how when you create a song, you have no control how people are going to use it. You know, they may use it as a celebratory song about that week's events in soccer, or they may use it as, you know, their song about uh, love attained or unrequited love or whatever. Uh, I don't think anybody used it for the reason that got me to write the song. Uh, but then again, like I said, once you, once you play it for people, you're kind of giving it away. And that's the power of the instrumental music uh, is that people can use it. And that's kind of like hits at the the point of a, being a musician is that we are supposed to make music for people. That's kind of like our job. So it's it's a perfect example of things working. I think of a, the song "Born in the USA" by Springsteen, where mm -hmm. a lot of politicians use it as this patriotic song when they come on stage for a rally or whatever. And lyrically, the song is about the struggles of the middle class and, you know, war veterans coming back from the war. It's really yeah, not a patriotic song. Yeah. Is, yeah. It's a very dark, powerful song. Yeah. So I want to get to the new album before we go. Um, I, I love the conversation we've been having, but the new album shape shifting came out this month. Love it. Enjoy the energy of the music. How was the approach to this album that differed from the record before what happens next and your other music that you've released? Oh, uh, well, I picked a, a new location and uh, put together um, partly uh, a, a new set of uh, co-conspirators, band members, engineers. Um, the big deal was, I think, um, getting out of town, going to Valencia, California, working with producer-engineer Jim Scott, a legendary uh, man in, in, in the record-making world. And uh, I never thought he'd be interested in doing an instrumental record, but uh, it was just by accident that uh, drummer Kenny Aronoff just mentioned him 
to me because he had just done a session with him and uh, uh, Kenny and I were trading texts about the Hendrix tour that we were doing last year. We did two runs of the Experience Hendrix tour. And uh, when he mentioned him in the text, I thought, you know, maybe he's just sitting around waiting for somebody like me to call. (laughs) So I, you know, because I just thought, well, he works with, you know, Tom Petty and Chili Peppers and Rage Against the Machine. Why would he do a record with a with a guitar? So, but I I gave him a call and he was really up for it. And my wife and I uh, drove down there from San Francisco just to check the place out. And I just really liked him, and I loved his studio. What a crazy fun house place! Great gear, very cool atmosphere. And I just thought, wow, something special can happen here, you know. Um, and then I, I decided, I, I thought I could get uh, Kenny Aronoff and um, Chris Cheney together as my rhythm section. I'd done a record with Chris. We'd done Unstoppable Momentum a few years ago. I really loved his energy, his musicianship, uh, great personality. And of course, it, it just his bass playing uh, is just really fantastic. Very flexible, always creative, and the, the utmost professional uh, in the studio. Um, and I just thought, wow, I bet he would go really well with Kenny. You know, I just, and, and of course, every uh, night, you know, I'd been on stage with Kenny playing Hendrix and we were just having a blast. It was really overt, crazy, you know, wa- watching him do crazy Mitch Mitchell every night was really fun. And we had toured before in Chickenfoot maybe eight years ago or something like that. Uh, so, it, you know, I knew what Kenny was like when he was, uh, doing a job properly, trying to emulate somebody else uh, on stage every night. Um, and But I also knew him for being himself and his influences, which were not far from mine, really. Uh, he was a total uh, Mitch Mitchell fan like I am, so uh, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And uh, I got them all together right at the end of August, right before our, uh, our second uh, Hendrix run. And in 10 days, we knocked out this stuff. It was just so much fun uh, playing with them and being in the studio with them. I had with me Eric Codia, who I've been making records with uh, since, God, 96. You know, he's been an editor. He's been a keyboard player, guitar player. He came out on tour with us a couple of times, and we've made, you know, a totally electronic record together, uh, Engines of Creation, and then he's been involved in quite a few albums, uh, either just editing or adding keyboards or being uh, sort of like an associate producer. So um, we've done a, a lot of work together, uh, and it was great to have him on the team as well. So um, it was a really comfortable uh, yet uh, energizing mix of people. And I brought them this weird concept, which was, Let's make every song different. Everybody can change their musical personality to make the song work. In other words, it's, it's going to be opposite from what you usually do, which is you show up and you someone says, this is a metal record, so everybody play metal. <laughs> you know, We're going to arrange the songs to be metal. Or, you know, it could be blues or reggae, who knows what. But instead of making an album where everybody and all the performances fit the theme of the album, I said, why don't we all change to fit the theme of each and every song? So every song is a separate opportunity to apply a different way of playing. And that was what the the theme shape-shifting implied to everybody, which was let's shape-shift musically for each song. 
I did notice the diversity in the songs that are on the album. When you are recording a new record, a new album, is it important for you to find that evolution of being an artist, find something different to inspire you? Uh, I think there are times when um, I adopt a, a more singular view and then there are other times where I'm completely just like multiple personality guy, you know. Um, I don't know what that is, like why I go through those different moods and to different degrees. But sometimes I, you know, I just get an idea and I just want to run with it as much as I can, you know. I, I mean, I think I've released albums that were uh, very focused and then other albums uh, like Shapeshifting, which flirted with the idea of um, compositional diversity, uh, but not not so much in playing diversity. This time I really surrendered to uh, the, each song, uh, and, and not just technique-wise, because I knew that no matter what, I was, I was always going to sound like me, and you can't get away from yourself. But you, you can do things, you can allow the situation to, to push you into a new territory. So, for instance, like with a, a song like uh, "Falling Stars" uh, or "Hear the Blue River," um, you know, I would I would allow Jim Scott to say to me, "Joe, we should we should do a different kind of guitar, and, and let's fool around with amps." And I would just say, "Yes, just yeah." You tell me what you think would be cool, and we would spend a few hours playing every amp all over the place, changing guitars until we all thought something was really different and interesting. And then I would just do it. In other words, I didn't have an agenda to promote myself as a certain kind of guitar player, something you might do when you were 20 and you're trying to, you know, get a toe in the music business world. You get, you're very focused, you know, I can do this, you know? And, uh, but when you've been around and you've, you know, you've put out 16, 17 studio albums and, you know, countless deep live DVDs and everything, that that whole thing about proving who you are and your identity and your tech, technical level, it just doesn't matter anymore. Everybody knows who you are. They all know you can play. And so it seemed like the perfect moment to just surrender to, uh, to the, the theme of the album and, and each song and, and not worry about your career, so to speak, you know, driving your amp choice or how many notes you play. Um, and, uh, so that was really, uh, and I, it was a fantastic sort of like playhouse attitude every day I went to the studio because I really didn't know what I was going to be playing, what amp I was going to be using. And, you know, I just, I would just make it happen. And, and sometimes it was with stuff that sounded obviously like me, you know, and then other times like with the song Yesterday's Yesterday, it was just the three of us just in a room improvising changing guitars for every take, changing the way I play, just sort of bouncing off of each other. And then all of a sudden everyone would say, hey, that was a take. Like there was magic on that one and we just leave it. And, you know, nobody said, hey, that's not my identity or that's not what I'm known for or, you know, how's that going to fly in the in the lead guitar magazine? <laughs> you, know, or, you know, it's like all those things that really don't matter, but you for some reason people worry about when they're thinking about their career, you know, instead of people really should be thinking about making inspired music. I think I think that's more important. 
Do you enjoy that spontaneity that happens like that, or or do you like the more you know strict approach to coming in with everyone's on the same page, everyone knows what they're going to do? Which do you prefer? Well, to tell you the truth, one one allows the other to happen. Like anybody can show up unprepared and wing it. You know what I mean? I mean that's that doesn't actually take effort. Um, but there's a difference when you when you arrange a song very tightly and then you turn to the bass player and you say, you see these eight bars here? I need you to just be like the coolest bass player and come up with something great, you know? That takes a lot of musicianship to suddenly turn around and and offer up, you know, a hundred different really cool ideas perfectly played. And But that's what studio musicians do. That's what I asked of you know, Chris Cheney and of Kenny Aronoff, which is, I'd say to them, you got every take, you can try something different. And, uh, but, you know, we have to get to the course here and then this is where the bridge comes. So, and, so, and they want to know that. I mean, musicians like to, to know where it is they're supposed to nail a part and where they're allowed to fool around. It helps them focus their improvisation. Um, and so uh, I think that's extremely important. Um, and I've been on, you know, I've been, on both sides of it where we've recorded stuff that we weren't supposed to record and it's turned out to be magical, but then it's taken uh, some real hard work in the studio to wrestle that recording into shape. A good example would be down the drain on the first uh, chicken foot record. We were all set up to record an entirely different song and for some reason, Chad and I just started playing something. We were looking at each other. We had, you know, mm-hmm. nod and a wink, and we were talking about thing, and we just started this riff, and Mike joined in, and it just turned into a song, but we all were playing differently because we were expecting Andy to yell at us in the headphones saying, will you guys stop pulling around? Let's get to this track, right? But of course, what we hear and we see is... Uh, we see um, Sammy Hagar slowly crossing this huge studio room at, at Skywalker Sound, which can hold like 200-piece orchestra. And he's crossing over through the studio where we're playing, and and he's laughing and talking. He gets into his vocal booth, and, you, and it's on the album. You hear him laughing and saying, Hey, Joe, hey, Chief, is that is that the new song? Is that that new song? This is good. This is good. And then he just starts improvising some lyrics, you know. And so we, after about eight minutes, we finally laugh and then we go, okay, that was really a lot of fun. And then we go back and we listen to it. We go, no, that's really good. That's something. And then so, but then we had to be musicians, like, you know, trained musicians that say, okay, if we're going to use this, if this was an instant composition that just happened, we need to tighten it up. We need a bridge somewhere. And so we went out and quickly wrote a bridge and, you know, we were able to edit it in there, and then uh, uh, what? Uh, then uh, Mike and, and Sammy got together, and they said, "Okay, we'll just whatever it was I was singing about, we're just gonna, you know." And for some reason, Sammy was screaming down the drain. It's all down the drain. So he then he and Mike got together, and they kind of formalized it and and uh, overdubbed the vocals. And, but I mean, that you know, you have to be prepared as a musician for those moments to happen. So. You know, the art of improvisation actually takes a lot of work. 
but I guess that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I, I I love that story. I love the the approach. You know, I, I mean, I know you recorded with Glenn Hughes and Chad Smith on your previous album, and now you know you 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 have a whole new you know, harem that you did record with, uh, with, uh, this new record. So I, I do like the different approaches and different types of styles. This album has so much diversity in it, but so much energy. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, Joe, it's been a blast. Thanks for a great conversation. I enjoyed it. It, uh, was so interesting. We could go on forever, but thank you again for doing this. It's been a real pleasure, Jay. Thank you. That's Joe Satriani. I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the Ultimate Rock Community Podcast. Stay safe, stay healthy. We'll talk again soon. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.